The decolonization narrative has dehumanized Israelis to the extent that otherwise rational people excuse, deny, or support Barbary. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and today's episode, we will be discussing some facts and some truths about Hamas, their ideology, and their aim. We will also be breaking down this decolonization narrative. But if you enjoy this podcast or the work that I'm doing here, the best way to support it is via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbitz directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit called You Are Loved. But without further ado, here is episode 202 of Something for Everybody. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and this is the third podcast episode I'll be doing that's covered the Israel-Hamas war. Specifically, this one will be covering more truth and facts about Hamas and who they are and what their aim is in Israel and with the Jewish people. So here we go. Only Hamas is deliberately targeting civilians. Hamas fires its rockets at Israeli civilians from hospitals, schools, UN facilities, and mosques. Hamas seeks to force the Israeli military to violate the rules of war. Israel accepts that there are no rules that Hamas gunmen would ever follow. The odd result is that a sick world is more accepting of a deliberate mass murdering by Hamas than occasional accidental collateral damage by Israel. That is just a small quote snippet from a very long important thread by Victor Davis Hansen. I encourage you to follow him on Twitter. He posts and talks about very reliable information and has done so for the past 30 or so years. So very important. According to the New York Times, as supplies of virtually every basic human necessity dwindle in Gaza, one group in the besieged enclave remains well-stocked, Hamas. Arab and Western officials say there is substance to Israeli claims of Hamas stockpiling supplies, including desperately needed food and fuel. Hamas has hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel for vehicles and rockets, caches of ammunition, explosives, and materials to make more, and stockpiles of food, water, and medicine, the officials said. A senior Lebanese official said Hamas, which is estimated to number between 35 and 40,000, had enough stock to to keep fighting for three or four months without resupply. The supply situation speaks to the relative sophistication of Hamas as a fighting force. An axiom among military professionals is that while amateurs talk about tactics, professionals talk about logistics. Yet with Gazans facing a humanitarian catastrophe, Hamas stockpiles raises questions about what responsibility, what responsibility, if any, it has to the civilian population. According to NBC News, the unemployment rate in Gaza is 47% and more than 80% of its population lives in poverty. According to the United Nations, Hamas, however, has funded an armed force of thousands equipped with rockets and drones and built a vast web of tunnels under Gaza. Estimates of an annual military budget range from 100 million to 350 million, according to Israeli and Palestinian sources. Since coming to power in the Gaza Strip 17 years ago, Hamas has filled its coffers with hundreds of millions in international aid, overt and covert injections of cash from Iran and other ideological partners, as well as cryptocurrency, taxes, extortion, smuggling, 
according to current and former U.S. officials and regional experts. Much of the money is public and legal, including large sums of financial aid from Qatar via the United Nations, an arrangement encouraged and approved by Israel. The Qatari aid covers the salaries of civil servants, buys fuels for the power grid, and provides cash to the needy families. Hamas leadership has invested its income in international investment portfolio worth $500 million. In real estate and other assets from companies in Algeria, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, which it uses to conceal and launder its money. This is according to a treasury announcement. So basically, I say all that to say Hamas is the governing body in the Gaza Strip. And so they have chief responsibility for the wealth and welfare, health and welfare of the Gazan uh, Palestinian civilians. And they don't give two shits. They don't give two shits about those citizens. In fact, they want those citizens to die. Over the weekend, Ismail Hanahi, the political leader of Hamas, called for the blood of Palestinian Arab women and children. If you really want to help Palestinians, the best way to support them is by first supporting tangible steps toward peace by freeing Gaza from Hamas and letting the Palestinian people decide their own future without being controlled by a repressive terrorist organization. Free Gaza from Hamas and its injustice once and for all. And here's a few facts about just some women's rights in Gaza. Uh, examples of women's lives under Hamas rule. One, Hamas restricts, women, Hamas restricts women from going anywhere without male supervision. Over 23% of marriages in Gaza involve girls under the age of 18. In Gaza, wearing the hijab is mandatory. Noncompliance can result in physical punishment and imprisonment. Hamas banned women from dancing in public. And Hamas prohibits women from participating in any public sports events. A dozen, a dozen Muslim-majority countries... Uh, execute people for the crime of homosexuality under Islamic law. People are executed for renouncing Islam. There is no religious freedom, no freedom of speech, no freedom of personal expression under Sharia. It is the antithesis of liberal or progressive values. Hijab is not a choice for the, mass, for the vast majority of women. Girls and women are abused, tortured, killed by their families in honor violence and honor killings across the globe over this piece of cloth. Women have been imprisoned in countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia. Perhaps though, most importantly, for today's context, radical Islam is viciously anti-Semitic. How can a group of people who bleep about diversity and inclusion be aligning with a religion that claims that even the earth itself hates Jewish people, which hopes and predicts that one day will come when even the rocks and trees will call out, oh Muslim, there is a Jew behind me, come kill him. As Claire Lehman, founded, founder of Culette, put on Twitter or X, I've been covering the toxic ideology for years. If you have told me a month ago that this ideology would lead more than half of Americans under 25 to justify and excuse the torture and mass murder of a minority group, I would not have believed you. We are at a, we are at a very, very important moment in history. We are at a moment that is so many of us have talked about and thought about while studying history or watching a World War II movie. What would I have done? What would I have done? What would I have done or been one of those Germans who hid their Jewish neighbors in their attics, protecting them from genocidal Nazis? Or would I have been one of those many Germans who was too scared to do anything but comply? 
or worse, or worse, would I have been one of the people who was convinced, convinced by the hateful and disgusting propaganda? Wonder no more. Wonder no more. Your moment is here. And, that, and that's a snippet from an article written by Yasmin Mohammed, who is the author of Unveiled How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. And she is the founder and president of a not-for-profit uh, human rights organization called Free Hearts, Free Minds. Uh, I urge you to check her out as well, Yasmin Mohammed. Uh, this is an interesting piece about Qatar and sort of how they have uh, infiltrated some American universities, and maybe that's an, a reason why um, so many of our young people uh, believe the things they believe. So the same country that's now protecting Hamas senior leaders has donated billions of dollars to American university universities. Here's why. One reason why Qatar has been able to invest so much in American institutions is because U.S. foreign policy has embraced the country since the war on terror began after 9-11. Even though Qatar is aligned with Hamas and to a lesser extent Iran, it also hosts the El Udad Air Base. The Qataris are an important interlocutor between America and Iran. And after President Biden's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, Qatar agreed to process more Afghan refugees than any other Arab ally. Today, Qatar holds the $6 billion in Iranian, Iranian oil revenues that America unfroze in September and refroze after the, September, the October 7th Hamas pogrom. One of Qatar's soft powers aims to advance the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islam, Islamist movement that spawned Hamas and the ruling party in Turkey. According to 2021 analysis from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Qatar funds the International Union of Muslim Scholars, the clerical arm of the Brotherhood. In 2017, Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates imposed a trade and travel embargo on Qatar in response to its support of the Muslim Brotherhood. Doha's embrace of political Islam is one factor that distinguishes it from its Gulf Arab neighbors who turned on the movement after the Arab Spring in 2010-2011. So Charles Asher Small, who is the executive director of the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, said one of the consequences of Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood and its soft power operation abroad was to make Israel was to make Israel toxic in Western political and intellectual discourse. Their soft power is aimed at demonizing Israel as well as promoting anti-Western and anti-democratic discourse to weaken the West. And anti-Semitism is really the fuel to light that fire. That's what that's what Small said. And so both Iran and Hamas oppose sort of any kind of peace with Israel and argue that the only solution is the destruction of Israel and the establishment of Palestine from river to the sea. But if Israel, if Israel defeats this anti-peace Hamas, Conditions will be ripe for peace. With peace and, and foreign investments, Gaza can become a, a tourism and services hub. Uh, its international airport, which was destroyed in 2001, can be reopened. Its planned port can be built. Gaza can be turned from a pocket of misery into an oasis of hope. But first, very first, Israel will have to win this war and the Arabs will have to be ready to help out on the days that follow. That's very important.
When the present war ends, whenever that may be, hopes for reconstruction and a decent government in Gaza will rest largely on the Palestinians who join a post-Hamas administration of the territory. In the past, Gazans have shown great courage, great courage in trying to bring change on their own. Veterans of Gaza 2019 anti-Hamas streets demonstrations, for example, braved gunfire in prison to make their voices heard, but received neither support nor solidarity from the outside world. And drawing attention to Gazan voices opposed to Hamas, we can show that a different, brighter, and more peaceful future is possible, one that merits international support because of the Palestinians in Gaza who yearn and strive for it. <clears throat> because peace in the Israel-Palestine conflict had already been difficult to achieve way before Hamas's barbarous attacks on October 7th um, and before Israel's military response. Now it seems in many people's eyes like impossible, but its essence is clearer than ever. Ultimately, a negotiation to establish a safe Israel beside a safe Palestinian state. Whatever the enormous complexities and challenges of bringing about this future, one truth should be obvious among decent people. Killing 1,400 people and kidnapping more than 200, including scores of civilians, was deeply wrong. The Hamas attack resembled a medieval Mongol raid for slaughter and human trophies, except it was recorded in real time and published to social media. Yet, since October 7th, Western academics, students, artists, activists have denied, excused, or even celebrated the murders by a terrorist sect that proclaims anti-Jewish genocidal program. Some of this is happening out in the open, some behind the mask of humanitarianism and justice, some in code, most famously from the river to the sea, a chilling phrase, a chilling phrase that implicitly endorses the killing or deportation of 9 million Israelis. It seems odd, it seems odd that one has to say killing civilians, old people, and even babies is always wrong. But today, I guess, we must. How educated people, how educated people justify such callousness and embrace such inhumanity? All sorts of things are at play here, but much of the justification for killing civilians is based on a fashionable ideology, decolonization which, taken at face value, rules out the negotiation of two states, the only real solution to this century of conflict, and it is a dangerous as it is false. The decolonization narrative has dehumanized Israelis to the extent that otherwise rational people excuse, deny, or support barbary. It holds that Israel is an imperial colonist force, that Israelis are settler colonialists, and that Palestinians had the right to eliminate their oppressors. On October 7th, we all learned what that meant. It cast Israelis as white or white adjacent and Palestinians as people of color. This ideology, powerful in the academy but long overdue for serious challenge, is a toxic, historically nonsensical mix of Marxist theory. Soviet propaganda and traditional anti-Semitism from the Middle Ages and the 19th century. But its current engine is the new identity analysis, which sees history through the concept of a race that derives from American experience. The argument is that it's almost impossible. 
impossible for the oppressed to be themselves racist, just as it is impossible for an oppressor to be the subject of racism. Jews, therefore, cannot suffer racism because they are regarded as white and privileged. Although they cannot be victims, they can and do exploit others, less privileged people in the West through the sins of exploitive capitalism and in the Middle East through colonialism. Contrary to the decolonizing narrative, Gaza is not technically occupied by Israel. Not in the usual sense of soldiers on the ground, Israel evacuated the Strip in 2005, removing its settlements. In 2007, Hamas seized power, killing its Fatah rivals in a short civil war. Hamas set up one-party state that crushes Palestinian opposition within its territory, bans same-sex relationships, oppresses women, and openly espouses the killing of all Jews. At the heart of the decolonization ideology is the categorization of all Israelis, historic and present, as colonialists. This is simply wrong. Most Israelis are descended from people who migrated to the Holy Land from 1881 to 1949. They were not completely new to the region. The Jewish people ruled Judean kingdoms and prayed in the Jerusalem temple for a thousand years. They were ever present there in smaller numbers for the next 2,000 years. In other words, Jews, Jews are indigenous in the Holy Land. And if one believes in the return of the exiled people to their homeland, then the, Jew, then the return of Jews is exactly that. Even those who deny this history or regard it as irrelevant to the modern times must acknowledge that Israel is now home and only home of 9 million Israelis who have lived there for five, six, four, five, six generations. Even more preposterous than the colonizer label is the whiteness trope that is the key to the decolonization ideology. Again, simply wrong. Israel has a large community of Ethiopian Jews and about half... Of all Israelis, that is about 5 million people, are Mizrahi, the descendants of Jews from, Air, from Arab and Persian lands, people of the Middle East. They are neither settlers, nor colonialists, nor white Europeans at all, but inhabitants of Baghdad and Cairo and Beirut for many centuries, even millennia, who were driven out after 1948. <clears throat> now, Israel has done many harsh and bad things. Netanyahu's government is probably the worst ever in Israeli history and promotes a maximalist utilitarianism and is both unacceptable and unwise. Everyone has the right to protest against Israelis' policies and actions, but not to promote terror sex, the killing of civilians, and the spreading of menacing anti-Semitism. Their own Israeli people were protesting the Israeli government. But, But you cannot justify or, yeah, at all, you cannot justify at all the actions of Hamas. You cannot do that. You have to separate the two. You have to condemn those actions. You have to defeat Hamas. You have to free those people. And, and that's what has to happen. But the Palestinian people have legitimate grievances and have endured much brutal injustice. That is true. And so the war continues to unfold tragically 
uh, as I read this, as I talk about this, the pounding of Gaza is is killing civilians, uh, Palestinian civilian children every single day. And that is unbearable as Israel still grieves its losses and buries its children and and defends itself. And we deplore the killing of, of Israeli citizens just as we deplore the killing of Palestinian civilians. We, we reject Hamas, evil and unfit to govern. We do not mistake Hamas for the Palestinian people whose losses we mourn as we mourn the death of all innocents. Right, that that those things are all true in the wider span of history. Sometimes terrible events can shake, can shake fortified positions. Anwar Sadat and Menshem Begin make peace after the Yom Kippur War. Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat made peace after the Intifada. The diabolical crimes of October seventh will never be forgotten, never be forgotten. But perhaps in years to come, after the scattering of Hamas and Netanyahuism is just a catastrophic memory. Israelis and Palestinians will draw the borders of their states tempered by 75 years of killing and stunned by one weekend's Hamas butchery into mutual recognition. That is the only way. There is no other way. And that was from a a really incredible article in The Atlantic by Simon Sabag Montefiore. And I hope everyone checks that out. I, I picked some of the most important pieces from that but the whole article is exceptional and really breaks down that decolonization settler narrative and speaks very realistically about, you know, the suffering of the Palestinian people and what we can hope for and move towards um, is sort of, you know, peace, of course. And so the last thing I want to talk about um, is this. And so I think it's obvious um, that no one wants any Palestinian people to be killed and certainly not children. But the question is like, who is to blame for their deaths and how do we avoid more deaths in the future? 99% of Israelis just want to live in peace. If tomorrow you removed all the weapons from Gaza and the West Bank, there would be no more violence. On the other hand, if you removed all weapons from Israel, within a week there would be no Israel. We would be attacked by all our neighbors, not just Palestinians, and every last Jew would be murdered. In order for there to be peace, the first thing you need to, the first thing you need is for each side to recognize the other right to exist. 99% of Israelis recognize the Palestinian right to exist and govern themselves, as well as, as well, we all know that there are extremists in any society, and that's why it's not 100%. Of course, the prime minister and some decisions from the government primarily relating to settlements haven't helped the peace process, and we fully recognize that. And we can discuss the peace process separately on how Palestinians have rebuffed every attempt Israel has made over the years to find a solution. However, over the past year-ish, You have had hundreds of thousands of Israelis protesting against Netanyahu in the streets. That's because Israel is the only place in the Middle East where we can safely protest against the government. Not to mention the only place where women have equal rights and being gay isn't punishable by imprisonment or death. When Iranians recently protested against the morality police, they were, uh, that was beating women to death for removing their hijab. The government response was to publicly execute protesters as a deterrent, and it worked. My point is, my point is that Israel has always just wanted peace. In 1948, when the UN partitioned the land, the Jews said, okay, let's make this work. 
The Arabs immediately attacked us on all fronts. It's been the same story for 75 years. We're attacked, we win the war. We wait for the next barrage. Still, we've managed to achieve peace with at least some of our neighbors. Let's use Egypt as an example. Egypt attacked Israel in 1948, 1967, and 1973, not including smaller skirmishes along the way. After the war in 1973, Egypt finally decided that it was <clears throat> it was better for its citizens to live alongside Israel peacefully than to keep trying to eliminate it. For the first time, Egypt recognized Israel's right to exist, and we've had relative peace since. The same thing happened with Jordan, which borders Israel in the east. They attacked us numerous times. And peace only happened after we beat them so badly, they decided it was better for their citizens to recognize Israel and live alongside it than to keep attacking us. There are a lot of uh, words and narratives tossed around about the existing conflict that are simply not true. For example, Israel does not occupy Gaza. I've said that multiple times in this episode, but it continues to be said. Hasn't since 2005. In fact, there's not a single Jew or Israeli in Gaza except those held hostage still right now. And in 2005, Israel pulled out of Gaza and forcibly removed about 9,000 Jews who were living there at the time. We turned it over to Palestinians and offered to supply them with whatever they needed to begin thriving, uh, to build a thriving state. There was no siege, no occupation. Israel provided Gaza with food, electricity, money, and continued to do so till about three weeks ago. The Palestinians elected Hamas to govern Gaza. Hamas immediately started a bloody civil war in which it annihilated. Uh, in which it un eliminated and annihilated all its political opponents, whom were Palestinian, by the way, and has held power ever since. Hamas' mission isn't for interpretation. There's no wishy-washy about it. They're very straightforward about what they want to do. They have a charter, which you can read online, and that its preamble states this. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. It's just one of the many places where they make it clear that their goal is to eliminate Israel and the Jews. Nothing about creating a thriving Palestinian state, which we talked about in previous. Since Hamas fully took control of Gaza in 2007, it has been nothing but violence. Hamas has openly declared war on Israel and the Jews and has spent the last 16 years solely focused on killing as many of us as possible. Gaza receives hundreds of millions of dollars in aid each year and has received billions of dollars since Hamas took over and has nothing to show for it. That's simply because Hamas doesn't use the money to build infrastructure or schools or parks or art centers or anything that you'd expect a government to, to provide its citizens. Instead, it uses all of its money to build weapons and tunnels in order to carry out a stated purpose of eliminating Israel. That's what I said previous. Hamas is responsible for the health of its citizens, but they don't give two shits about their citizens. It's impossible to negotiate a two-state solution if one side's demand is that the other side is eliminated. In Israel, we've gotten used to living under rocket fire. Every building in Israel has a safe room. No other country in the world would accept those living conditions under constant rocket fire. But we are willing to continue living the way to avoid casualties in Gaza because it's impossible to retaliate against Hamas without killing civilians. This is because Hamas keeps and fires its weapons from residential neighborhoods, including schools and hospitals. Again, I've said that multiple times. It's important to realize those facts when looking at the casualties. This has all been well-documented for years. After, However, after what happened on October 7th, we can no longer live with Hamas on our doorstep. The scale and barbary of the attack has shaken every single person in Israel, including my cousins. Entire families burned to death in their homes and much worse. After what happened on the 7th, Israelis are almost unanimously 
agree that Hamas must be removed, even after the year of protesting the Israeli government. People have come together unanimously united in hopes to defeat Hamas, to free the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian people and no longer have to live in threat of being, uh, um, of wanting to be annihilated and removed from the earth. The question is now, is how do you do this with minimal civilian casualties? This is a very difficult problem since again, Hamas operates within civilian population. Keep in mind that Israel has a military capability to destroy Hamas from the air. They have the, they have the capability to destroy Hamas from the air. If you're really trying to commit genocide, which is a, um, a popular trope on the internet, as become popular slogan all around the world, then we could easily flatten Gaza from the sky without a single Israeli soldier being killed. But of course, of course, we absolutely would never consider, or Israel would can never consider doing something like that because unlike Hamas, we value human life. We value human life. For Israel and for the Jews, each life is sacred. There's a saying that comes from Judaism that says, whoever saves a life saves the entire world. More than any other word I've seen, genocide is the one that's been most misused and is the most dangerous. Genocide, the definition of genocide is the deliberate killing of large amounts of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. The world was invented, the word was invented after World War II to describe what Hitler did to the Jews. It's also Hamas' only stated purpose. On the other hand, no one in Israel wants to or nor has any intention to destroy the Palestinians, setting aside, setting aside of course, the few extremists we identified above. The reason that Israel is sending ground troops into Gaza is to identify Hamas operatives as precisely as possible to try and protect the general population. Many Israeli soldiers will die trying to accomplish this. Furthermore, Israel provides Palestinians with electricity, food, water, medical supplies, treatment, and jobs. Thousands of Palestinians cross into Israel every day to earn wages that are impossible to get in Gaza uh, in the Gaza Strip. That's because Hamas, the elected government in Gaza, isn't interested in economic growth, minimum wages, or any basic functions that one expects from its government. The average Palestinian lives in poverty, while the leaders of Hamas, who work for Iran, are incredibly wealthy and live far away in Qatar. I mentioned some stuff about Qatar earlier in this episode. Now Israel is being, being accused of genocide for cutting off the electricity to Gaza. In what world is one country obligated to provide electricity to another, let alone when that country is firing rockets and murdering its civilians and its citizens? The Palestinians receive enough aid to build all the power plants they've ever needed, but instead use that money to build rockets. Israel is being accused of genocide because of its siege on Gaza. What about Egypt? They share a border with Gaza and have refused to open it to let any Palestinians into Egypt. Why is that? That's because even Egypt, which is run by the Muslim Brotherhood, wants nothing to do with Hamas. They understand what happens if you let them in and would rather see thousands of Palestinians die than risk letting them cross the border. That is true for the entire Arab world. Israel is portrayed as this big bully against the weak Palestinians, but we are surrounded by two billion Muslims. There are only 7 million Jews in Israel. Speaking of genocide, the Arab population in Israel has grown dramatically, accounting for over 20% of the population in Israel, while there are almost no Jews anywhere else in the Middle East. Arabs in Israel receive citizenship, vote, serve in the army, and even in parliament. Jews are not welcomed almost anywhere in the Middle East. Like I said, Palestinians cross into Israel every day to work or receive medical care in Israeli hospitals. Do you know what happens to an Israeli if you were to wander into Gaza? 
He'd be executed, held hostage. Held hostage. If a if it was a woman, she'd be raped first. We're the ones committing. So we're the ones committing genocide. I don't understand. I don't understand that that claim and that trope. Gaza is a beautiful place. It's absolutely beautiful place with amazing beaches. It can be uh, the Singapore of the Middle East if the Palestinians put in place a government that wants to create instead of destroy. I mentioned that earlier also in the episode. If there was a government that cared more about its people's own well-being than it did hating Jews and Israelis, there would be peace and prosperity for everyone, including the. Palestinians now who are, who are, who are dra- drastically uh, suffering. Even now, Israel is blamed for not allow, allowing fuel into Gaza. We're told the hospitals are about to run out of fuel for their generators, yet Hamas has enough fuel to fire hundreds of rockets into Israel every single day. How do you make peace with a quote-unquote government that prioritizes shooting rockets at you over providing medical care for its own people? Again, the question, is, the question isn't whether they're suffering. Everyone in Israel fully recognizes and the vast majority sympathize with innocent Palestinians in Gaza. But rather, who is to blame? Who is to blame and how do we fix it? If Hamas is removed and rockets stop flying in from Gaza, not a single Israeli bullet will be aimed at Gaza. Israel would continue as it has for years, providing Palestinians with whatever they need to rebuild and we gladly help them create a paradise in Gaza that they can rule however they see fit. So as long as they do so peacefully. Keep in mind that women still wouldn't have any rights and homosexuality would still be illegal, just like it is in the rest of the Middle East, but that's their prerogative. Finally, finally, anti-Semitic rhetoric has sprung up around the world. I found it both eye-opening and uh, terrifying. Me and my cousin Josh really spoke about that in episode 200 and episode 196 also covers some of these topics. There were celebratory marches uh, all around the world immediately after attacks of October 7th before the fires in southern Israel were out and well before Israel responded. Well before Israel responded. There were not rallies in support of Palestinians, but rallies celebrating murder, rape, and destruction. How does removing images of children held hostage in Palestine, uh, we're seeing this all over the world, how does chanting gas to Jews in Sydney help the Palestinians, how does burning Israeli flags at Tulane or calling for violence against Hillel or Cornell help the Palestinians? How, how does it help? Tell me. The anti-Semitism that we've heard about our entire lives from grandparents who survived or fled the Holocaust, which we always felt only existed in fringe pockets of Western society like the KKK or other really awful hate groups, has surfaced in a way that I would have never thought even possible just a month ago. It only reinforces our belief that we cannot exist We cannot exist without the state of Israel because it's the only place where we are unconditionally welcome, the only army that will defend us, and while neither Israeli society nor its government are perfect. We share and fight for Western values and all we've ever wanted was to live in peace. So don't hide. Don't hide your Jewishness. Wear it with pride. Not because we are victims, because we are strong, because we are resilient, because our history is littered with death, with with massacres just like this, which we remember constantly to remind us always to choose life. The Jewish people have a mission, a purpose, and our light in this world. In every generation, they rise up to destroy us, but we preserve. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for tuning in to that episode. 
If you found it important or informational or if anything resonated with you, please share it with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast and the work that I'm doing is through Patreon. So click the link in the show notes, check out all the tiers, and see which one might work best for you and your needs. But most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.